Hey, hey, hey! Welcome back to the Claim the Stage podcast. I'm Angela Lucier. I am your host. I'm also a professional speaker, an author, the founder of the Speaking School for Women, and a lover of hammocks. Summer's almost over. I'm getting a little bummed out. I'm going to have to separate from my hammock for the winter, but we had a good run. This podcast is all about how to teach women to become professional speakers. And that means getting out there and inspiring audiences, getting paid to speak, building your message, building your platform, becoming an expert. And that's what today's episode is all about. I have the one and only, the awesome Dory Clark on my show to share with us her story about how she became a two-time published author, how she became an in-demand professional paid speaker, how she built her business and has used content marketing and her, her I'm going to say bulldog personality, which you'll understand why I say that later in the interview, to build a business that is flourishing and continues to grow because she is following her own advice. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dory Clark. On today's show, I'd like to welcome Dory Clark. Dory is an adjunct professor of business administration at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and the author of Reinventing You and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine and was a Washington Post bestseller. A former presidential campaign spokeswoman, the New York Times described her as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. She's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Time, and and entrepreneur. Recognized as a branding expert by the Associated Press, Inc., and Fortune, Clark is a marketing strategy consultant and speaker for clients including Google, Microsoft, Yale University, Fidelity, the U.S. State Department, and the World Bank. You can download her free 42-page standout self-assessment workbook and learn more at doryclark.com. Dory, it is such an honor to have you on my show today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to talk with you, Angela. <laughs> I It's interesting because we met about two years ago. We were both on a Smith College pl- uh, panel about entrepreneurship. And I remember listening to you and just thinking, wow, she is such an interesting person because she's here to talk about her amazing book, Reinventing You, and she's talking about entrepreneurship. But she didn't start there. She had a totally different background. So I thought it would be interesting if today you could tell us a little bit about like where you started out and how you got into the type of work you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a very eclectic career path. Uh, it was certainly not what I had anticipated. I started my career after graduate school as a journalist, and I did that for about a year covering politics. And unfortunately, I got laid off, and I was really one of the first, the first wave of casualties in the uh, in the newspaper industry. And I tried to get another job as a journalist, and it just wasn't wasn't the time for that. Jobs were not forthcoming, and so I uh, began to to look around and realize that I needed to reinvent myself. So I went into politics where I was the spokesperson on a presidential campaign. Uh, I then went into nonprofit management and was the executive director of a bicycle advocacy organization for a couple of years. And then in the course of running the nonprofit, I had this realization that it was 
the same thing really as running a business. And I thought, you know what, I could do that for myself. And that was really the first time that that had occurred to me. Uh, so 10 years ago, I started my, my business doing marketing strategy consulting. And most, most of the things I'm doing today have sprung from that. I write books, I give a lot of keynote talks, I teach business school, and I do uh, consulting and coaching for executives in, in various companies. Mm -hmm. So when you jumped into starting your own business, it wasn't totally foreign to you because you already had that experience and you kind of had the confidence that you could handle some of the stuff that would come with it. Well, I, I used the time that I was running the nonprofit very deliberately. And this is something that when I'm talking with people about uh, career pivots and how to reinvent themselves, I really stress is that I, I think in a lot of cases, our culture has this, this myth that you, that you have to take an immediate leap into something. And I know that you did this and did it very well, uh, but for people who are nervous about it or they have you know, large financial obligations, you know, kids or mortgages or, or things like that, you also can take a more measured path if you, if you want it, if that's what feels comfortable. And so for the last year of my tenure as uh, a nonprofit ED, I was just mapping things out in my head. I made an assessment of the skills that I needed to possess that I didn't presently. And I started doing things like reading books and taking courses so that I could fill in those blanks and be better prepared once I actually launched the business. Yeah, that's so smart. And I want to mention, you know, another thing about the night we were on the panel together was when I told the story about starting my business that you just mentioned. And how I didn't have any money, I didn't have like any contacts, and I just went out and I started giving speeches as a way to acquire new customers and sort of get in front of the right people and start building my brand in career consulting. And when you heard that story, I think it, it was, it probably resonated with you because you were in the midst of writing the book Stand Out. And so I share the story in the speaking school because I want to let my students know that, you know, doing free speaking gigs is not just about like getting out there and like standing up in front of people and hoping that you get new clients. You can also network with other speakers and you start to learn more about, you know, what, what they're working on, what kinds of projects are important to them and you build new relationships that way. And so it was really cool that being on that panel together resulted in being featured in your book, Stand Out. And so I was wondering if you could tell a little, a little bit about your book and a little bit about who you chose to be in that book and, and why you featured them. And, and what people could get out of reading it. Yeah, thank you. My, my book, Standout, came out in 2015 from Portfolio, which is the business imprint of Penguin. And the, the basic idea that, you know, the subtitle is how to find your breakthrough idea and build a following around it. And fundamentally, it is about how do you get known and recognized for your talents? How do you become a recognized expert? How do you build your brand up to the point in the marketplace so that people start coming to you rather than the, the, the constant uh, drone that we have to go through as entrepreneurs or um, small business owners or, or even professionals looking for jobs of just knocking on doors and, and begging? How do you reverse that dynamic and have a reputation that's strong enough that other people want to seek you out? And so in order to answer that question, I interviewed about 50 top thought leaders from uh, across a spectrum of different fields. And in the business world, um, I spoke to some people who are, who are pretty well known if, if your listeners enjoy business books. There's uh, Tom Peters, who's one of the, the first, most famous 
management gurus, Robert Cialdini, who wrote the great book per, per, uh, Influence, Psychology of Persuasion, uh, Seth Godin, Daniel Pink. Uh, but I also interviewed experts in everything from genomics to real estate to urban planning and tried to crack that code. And in, in capturing your story, I wanted I was really impressed with just the incredible hustle that you showed. And I wanted to have a mix in the book, not just of people who were already household names uh, in their industry, because I think that that's interesting and inspiring, but not necessarily immediately relatable to people. Mm. But um, but capturing someone like you who is, you know, in the uh, in the early arc of your career. I mean, obviously you've gotten, you've gotten well-established at, at this point, but you know, you have 20 or 30 years ahead of you <laughs> yeah. uh, in terms of the contribution that you're going to be making. So I, I think that showcasing your story and how you were able to really build things from the ground up is a way that people can perhaps put themselves in their shoes and say, Oh, you know, I, I could do that. Mm. Um, a lot of people, won't choose to because it involves a lot of effort um but you know that's what separates the wheat from the chaff and showing that it can be done i think is quite powerful who do you think could benefit most from reading stand out well i stand out is intended for people who know that their reputation matters mm. and that it can be a driver for their careers. And so I would say that, uh, that a, a logical audience would be entrepreneurs who, um, who get their business on the strength of who they are. Um, but you know, also uh, for people who are clued in, um, if you're a professional working inside a corporation, many people, I think erroneously assume that you don't need to worry about your broader public reputation. You know, all you have to do is maybe manage perceptions with your boss or maybe a few coworkers and then it'll take care of itself. But I, I've really come to believe and be a strong evangelist for the fact that, you know, as someone who was laid off very early in my career and then proceeded to work on a series of losing political campaigns, <laughs> um, if you're, if, even if you're good at your job, that won't help you if there are large-scale structural changes that are disrupting your industry or that your company is, is having financial problems and just can't afford to keep you on. Uh, and so building up a reputation so that you are known and respected both inside and outside your company is the best form of career insurance you can you can have. Um, you have to work work at it and earn it. But once you do, it means that even if your job goes away tomorrow, someone else is going to hire you. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, so I think for for people who are self employed, that calculation is more obvious or more self evident. But I think that it is true for every professional. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think what you're saying about creating that reputation and being visible outside of, a, of an organization is something that you do so well. And every time I'm on social media and I see you on Twitter or on Facebook, I just think like, wow, she is so amazing <laughs> at posting about what she's up to and, and giving shout outs and promoting the content she's writing online. And I just, I think 
you know, you have so much to add to this conversation beyond, you know, using public speaking and using other marketing tools just on the social media front, because you write for platforms like entrepreneur.com, Harvard Business Review, Time, and you often link to your articles while also promoting the people who are featuring you. So I have a couple questions for people who want to stand out on social media because we're all there and are we using it correctly is the question. So. I'm wondering how you became a writer for these outlets, because a lot of my, my students in my speaker school want to do the same thing. And also, how has this content strategy worked for your brand and your reputation? So the way that I was able to get plugged in at the publications, Angela, is I pursued something that uh, it's commonly known as, uh, as the ladder strategy. And I, I think that this is something that a lot of professionals should um, take in and make part of their repertoire because what i what i often see is that people understand in a general sense that content creation is important and valuable but then they stagnate or get frustrated because they're blogging let's say on linkedin or for their own blog and they're not getting enough readers and they say oh this isn't working why should i bother and that's that's the place where uh, it's an inflection point and a lot of people give up but if you can find a way around it, if you can find a way not to give up, you're able to really be able to catapult forward. And here is how I did it and what I would recommend for other people. Um, so initially, of course, you're going to want to start writing on your own, you know, your own LinkedIn site or medium or, or something like that, just so you can establish some clips, quote unquote, you want some sample articles. And that enables you to practice to get better to establish your voice, just get comfortable with the mechanism of writing a blog post. But once you have a little bit of experience under your belt, you're familiar with the premise, you feel you feel good about it, then you don't want to stop there, which is what a lot of people do. Instead, you want to reach out to higher and higher tier publications and ask if you can start writing for them because that gives you an expanded reach because more people are already reading them. They have a built-in audience, but it also gives you additional social proof. You can begin to cite your affiliations with those publications in your bio, for instance. And that is just an immediate source of credibility. People begin to look at you differently. And so, you know, just as a framework, I'd suggest number one, start by writing on your own sites. Number two, begin to reach out locally or regionally. I mean, if I was if I was saying this for you, you could write for the the Holyoke Papers website or for the Springfield Republicans website or the Daily Hampshire Gazette, uh, something like that. And then you you use that as a credibility tool to springboard. And so then you can approach the the Boston Globe, you know, let's say, which would be a regional daily, and they're going to look at it differently. The, the globe might not take you seriously if the only thing you've ever written for is your own website, but if you've written for publications that they consider feeder publications, then they say, oh, okay, this is sort of a logical progression. Let's see what this person has to say. And then you're able to springboard up to national publications. And of course, all of this helps if you're able to simultaneously be cultivating a network and contacts of people who can introduce you to editors and make that warm intro. But you, you need to be establishing the credibility on your own and the latter strategy is a good way to do it. Mm -hmm. And how would you say this content strategy has worked for your brand? 
so it's it's been enormously helpful. Um, early on, I was not so concerned with absolute readership numbers as I was with the sheer fact of credibility. Um, my my number one goal, you know, for for better or for worse, I was somewhat obsessed with it. Was that I wanted to land a book deal. That was something that was an important personal milestone for me and something that I wanted to do. And so I, in 2009 really tried to make an effort to get a book contract and just kept getting rebuffed because my so-called platform was not big enough. I was not famous enough yet. And so I realized that I had to go back to the drawing board and work to get better known so that a publisher would look at me. And so I spent a couple of years really trying assiduously to get myself insinuated into different publications. And so I, I had a, a very deliberate campaign for it, but, uh, but it did work. Um, I first was able to break in through, through a contact at the Huffington Post, and then I was able to connect with the Harvard Business Review. That was actually very serendipitous because I was living in Boston at the time, and I sold my bicycle on Craigslist to a woman who worked at the Harvard Business Review, <laughs> and uh, that was that was pretty convenient. She was not the right person, but she was able to introduce me to the right person, and so I got my work looked at, and they approved it, and ultimately, it was a blog post for HBR that uh, led to my deal for my first book. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about becoming a published author and um, how you did that. So um, I everyone guess... should sell their bikes. <laughs> I know. I was gonna say, that doesn't seem like a repeatable strategy. <laughs> um, how so I, I don't know, like, how did you go about getting your books in the hands of publishers that for reinventing you, they, they saw this article and they were impressed and they said, we want, we want something longer and we'll, you know, we'll bring you on. I mean, how did that work? In many ways that, that was the case. So I, um, I wrote the blog post for, for HBR and it was a popular post. It did well. And so it, it you know, th this is very much the sort of luck meets preparation um, framework because HBR hadn't even really been on my radar as a publication to try to break into. Um, I was uh, I was focused on other things. I was trying to get into ink, trying to get into Fast Company, and I was uh, I was just hitting a lot of roadblocks at the time. I mean, I've now been published in both, but at the time I had friends that blogged for both of them. But um, despite that, despite having contacts and people willing to make introductions for me the editors were just stonewalling me i mean that that happens sometimes people are busy and they can just be jerks uh, so uh, <laughs> they don't get back to you or they, they even they even worse they tell you oh yeah okay send me something and you you know stay up all night working on something really hard and then they take three months to get back to you and, and then they tell you no um yeah. so there's a lot of frustrations but the upside of that is that because i'd had a number of false starts or being rebuffed by publications i i had a lot of pitches put together and so when this opportunity came to me where i met someone at hbr i i had plenty of stuff in my <laughs> in my coffers and so when she finally went through and did introduce me to an editor, I had a lot of things to send him and he liked some of it. So, so he said, well, you know, send me the full post. And I did, and, and he ran it. Uh, when the, the post came out, I think they, they, you know, they remembered it because it was well received and, and got a lot of views and comments and things like that. Uh, and so I, had, I continued writing other posts for them, but 
they had, uh, you know, in another sort of stroke of luck, but one for which I was prepared, it was uh, the holidays, and they apparently had somebody just flake on them. Uh, I think there was supposed to be an article that was going to be running in HBR that somebody did not deliver as promised. And so they started kind of freaking out, and someone told the editor that I was working with, hey, what about that piece about reinvention? Can you get that turned into a... Uh, an article and you know from a 700 word blog post to let's say a 2500 word article and so i was in costa rica because it was christmas and uh so i wasn't even like checking my email my voicemail didn't work where i was and so uh that actually worked well for me because i think they thought i was playing hard to get and so for, you know i didn't get back to them for a couple of days and when i finally did check my email i see this like increasingly desperate uh <laughs> string of emails like kind of begging me like please would you would you do it you know please 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 and so uh I was I was able to finally get back to them and be you know very magnanimous. Well, you know, upon reflection, yes, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And uh, but of course the trick was they needed it like the next week. I had less than a week over Christmas to write this article, um, so I had to I had to get going on it really fast. But uh, but I did it and uh, and it, it was great. It was an immediate response um, when the piece came out. I got approached by three different literary agents who who you know cold called me essentially and said hey are you represented and uh and it was actually fortuitous because i had had an agent up to that time um but she she had felt like she had sort of exhausted her contacts and so she had just dropped me and so i needed an agent and uh it turns out that uh, a lot of literary agents trawl HBR and perhaps you know some other analogous publications looking for clients, and they were already uh, impressed with me at that point because what they want is platform, quote unquote. That's the reason that I couldn't get a deal before, and but now you know I had a platform. I had a piece that was published in HBR, and I had been blogging for them for a couple of months, so they felt more confident that they could sell my book. And so I was able to turn that article into uh, into a book proposal. And HBR actually has the right of first refusal for article for books that come out of their articles. And so I ended up just selling the proposal to them for it because they were interested. Oh wow! And do you still have the same literary agent today? Uh, I do. I do. Yes. And so how did the publishing deal work out for Stand Out? So for Stand Out, I, um, I ended up going with a different publisher. Um, it's, it's common for, um, for publishing houses to have a clause in there that they get, they get the right of first refusal for whatever your subsequent manuscript is. But uh, HBR had a couple of things going on. One was that they made a strategic decision to have the number of books that they were publishing per year. The second is that as a result of that, they were going to really be doubling down on their titles. And so they felt that they, that they were publishing a book already that was too close to my book. And I, I was, of course, frustrated with that. I'm like, no, it's totally different. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they thought it was enough of a similar piece that they did not feel comfortable representing both books since they were doing such a limited range of, uh, of titles. So they, they told me no for the second book. And so 
I was able then to, to go out and, you know, put it out to bid for other houses. Mm-hmm. And how did the publishing the books impact your speaking life? Did you feel that once you were a published author, you were able to land more speaking gigs, charge more, be recognized easier? What changed for you? Yeah, I would, I would say it's not even so much that uh, publishing the books helped me land more speaking gigs or get paid better for speaking gigs. It was that I, I did not have a paid speaking business before the books came out. Hmm. And it was only afterwards that I was able to have the credibility that would enable me to command fees for it. Uh, I think it was really transformative. Uh, because there's there's a lot of and, and this is this is what I did at the time. There's a lot of small business people that will speak for free as a lead generation mechanism, and that's that's a fine thing to do. Um, but if if you want somebody to actually pay you more than let's say a nominal fee to you know your, to cover your hotel or your train tickets or something, um, then you essentially need to make yourself a draw. And being an author is a big step in that direction. Mm -hmm. How would you say, what would you say on a new speaker who is doing what you're saying, like she's going out and she's giving free speaking presentations to promote her business and also, you know, share her knowledge and build her brand. What, what do you think the first steps should be for her? Is it, you know, find a platform, start writing and start trying to get noticed so that you can get a book published or would you say something different? Like what would you do differently? Yeah, I think, I think that it's, that's certainly a good starting place. I mean, the other, the other thing that I would throw out there as a frame is that it's, it's important for people to look at what their strengths are so that they can play to them. So for me, it was a fairly obvious choice because I, was a former professional journalist. So writing for me was pretty easy. That was, that was something that, uh, that I enjoyed, that I knew that I could do successfully. And so blogging in that way was, it was a strategic choice, but, but it was one that I knew I could excel at. Um, there's a lot of people who don't enjoy writing or it's, it's hard or time consuming for them or uh, it's just not something they want to do. And that's fine. Um, this, this is not a cookie cutter thing. It's really about sharing your ideas in whatever form that takes. So it could be um, really doubling down on speaking as you did. It could be making a video series. It, it could be um, getting very active on certain social media platforms. But, uh, but I think it's, it's really about finding ways to share your ideas that align both with where your audience is and also what you are good at. Mm-hmm. So if someone were starting out today, where would you recommend they put their marketing time and money? Would you say it goes back to that, understanding your skill set and then building things that match it? Or would you say something else? I think that that's a pretty a pretty reliable uh, way to do it. I mean, I am I am a lingering fan of long form content. I do think that um, even though there's always periodically blowback about oh people are so busy they don't have time for this or that, I I think that very high quality long form content is something that will always be popular and always be read and can help set you apart because of the effort, the sheer effort that it takes to uh, 
to put it forward. So I, I think that whatever form that takes, it that's a way to really add value that is distinct from what most other people are interested or willing to do. Mm-hmm. Um. So you were named a branding expert by the Associated Press, Fortune, and Inc. magazine. So what should professional speakers be focusing on to build their brand? The frame that I have for how to become a recognized expert, and this is something that I share in Stand Out and also in um, a course that I run called, called Recognized Expert, is that fundamentally there are three things that you need to do. There are three boxes that you need to check in order to become recognized for your talents. And they are content creation, your network, and social proof. And you can you can get away with having just two out of the three, but you absolutely have to have at least two. And if you can have three, that is even more valuable. And so just briefly, what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, content creation, of course, it's uh, self, self-evident. We were talking about it earlier. It is sharing your ideas publicly in one format or another so that people can see them and evaluate their quality for themselves. Number two is your network, uh, because you need people to help spread your ideas. You need uh, people that you trust to help vet your ideas. And so having a group of people that you respect and trust around you that can sort of be these ambassadors uh, really makes a big difference in something that that you can benefit from. And then finally, it, it comes to social proof. And this is an area that I think a lot of people neglect because gaining social proof is typically at cross purposes from gaining money at least in the in the early days you get money once you have social proof but uh, doing social proof activities usually does not does not pay you and so uh, sometimes people are too quick to go for the money but if things that can give you social proof might be for instance doing a TEDx talk which I know you've done mm-hmm. or it might be blogging for an unpaid publication like Harvard Business Review but that is respected by the business community. Or it might be uh, being the volunteer head of a professional association. All of those things will take your time, not give you any money, but they're a long-term investment in your overall credibility. Mm-hmm. How would you recommend that people go along, go ahead and build their networks? I always get pushback about networking events. People feel like they're fake and they're weird and it's, it's, a, it's a lot of time. Do you do something that you, know, you feel is focused and has been really successful in terms of building your network? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of, the, one of the biggest things that I have done, which I find personally very valuable, is I've made, since I moved to New York a couple of years ago, a very concerted effort to build my network, because I had to, otherwise I wouldn't have any friends here, mm-hmm. um, uh, by doing dinner gatherings. And, you know, that's my method of doing it. You, you know, people can do whatever. They could have brunch gatherings. They could have, um, you know, inv- invite people over for barbecues, you know, whatever, whatever your thing is. In my case, what I decided would be most fun and easiest for me is to have dinner gatherings. And so on average, probably twice a month, uh, sometimes a little more or a little less, I will invite groups of people together. Sometimes there'll be a theme to gathering. Um, I've done, you know, themed gatherings of musicians or themed gatherings of people who work in digital media or what have you. And, uh, but then sometimes I'll just do 
mashups where it's a group, just miscellaneous, interesting people. It'll be uh, eight to 10 people and we'll get together. And that's a really good way to get to know people more intimately. And many of those relationships are able to develop into uh, more rich, full, personal relationships. Uh, It's not cookie cutter at all. And so I, I think that the biggest thing is that people confuse networking as an activity with so-called networking events. They think that's the same thing. Oh, yeah. you network by going to a networking event sponsored by a chamber of commerce. <laughs> yeah. And those suck. And you should not waste your time going to that. Do your own. <laughs> that's awesome. How do you find the people you invite over for dinner? Do you, are you just like out and about and you see them out in a coffee shop or how does that work? <laughs> At a, at a certain point, um, your your challenge shifts. Uh, this is this is part of uh, part of the process of, of becoming becoming a recognized expert. Is uh, it, th- there's sort of a tipping point where people start just coming to you because they want to introduce their friends, or their friends want to meet you, or or they you know someone has an idea and they want to make a connection or something like that. So I actually partially do the dinners because I needed a way to funnel the requests because I cannot do 50 coffees a month. Um, that would not be possible. And so I needed a way to batch process, you know, 20 plus um, people coming at me per month that wanted to connect and with whom I, you know, I also wanted to connect. They looked interesting. Um, it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. I did. I just didn't have time. And so finding a way to bring people together was my way of, of handling that and being efficient with timing. But if uh, if you're you know sort of at a different place in terms of, of the overall incoming, um, you know, for me, that's because I've been writing for a long time and speaking for a long time. And so um, it, it sort of begins to trigger that. But at the other end of the spectrum, I would say if you're if you're sort of actively looking for people to meet, then, you know, a great starting point is to. Um, is to ask your existing network to just say, hey, you know, I'm looking to meet some cool new people. Can you name two friends that you have that I don't know that you think I would like or that you think would be interesting business contacts for me? Mm-hmm. And then get them to make an introduction. And then, you know, just like a salesman, you know, once you have coffee or dinner or whatever you're doing with those people, you can ask them who they, sh- you know, who you should reach out to and connect with. And before long, you're able to get up a really good stream of people. Um, the other thing, of course, is that I think most of us have people in our lives that we know a little bit, uh, but we don't know them well. You know, we've never really made an effort to do it. Maybe you work with them once on a project five years ago, or you know, you just uh, you know, they're somebody who is at a you know former client or or whatever it is. You've met them, but you don't really know them. And this is a good opportunity to get to know them better, and it just opens up new social channels for you. I love it. So do you invite them over your house? <laughs> I do it at a restaurant. I, the first time I tried to do it, I did it in my house. And I thought I was being so smart uh, because I, I cooked dinner for everybody. I told everybody it was going to be vegetarian. And, um, you know, it was, it was for six people. It wasn't that hard. And then at the last minute, um, there was one friend that, there was one friend coming that was vegan. And so I put together some accommodations for that. And then somebody's like, hey, can I bring a friend? Oh, by the way, she's gluten-free. I'm like, you know, this is a spaghetti party, right? <laughs> and so I, then it's like, okay, great. So I had to make like a whole new meal for the gluten-free person. And, you know, 
God bless her. It's fine to be gluten-free. It was a little stressful because it was like an hour before she was coming over. And I just decided, like, I cannot cope with this. I do not enjoy cooking enough to do this. So I do it at a restaurant. I do it with separate checks uh, and, you know, just get it set up. And so I kind of have a system down now for it. Oh, that's awesome. I I wanted to just kind of dig into exactly how that works because I think it's such an amazing idea. And just kind of understanding the logistics of it will be helpful for everyone who might want to try it. So awesome. Yeah. Um, let's jump into our lightning round. We're going to do our five quick questions, uh, that I ask every guest. Number one, what's the number one piece of advice you have for women who want to be well-known speakers? The, the number one piece, and you know, this is sort of a, a substratum of what we've been talking about, but it's, it's don't go at the speaking business directly. I mean, you can, you can reach out proactively, you can cold call, but I've talked to people who have, who have actually been successful in doing that. And by successful, I mean, their hit rate is between one and 2%, meaning out of a hundred attempted outreaches, they'll get one speaking engagement. So that's great if you're so desperate to do that. But for many people who are professionals, you have other better things to do with your time than call 100 people and get rejected 99 times. Um, instead, focus on content creation so that they will come to you instead. Mm-hmm. And number two, do you have a personal operating philosophy? And if so, what is it? My personal operating philosophy is, uh, it's it sort of summed up in a famous uh, Theodore Roosevelt quote, which I, which I really love, which is, in any moment of crisis, the, the best thing to do is the right thing. The next best thing to do is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. <laughs> uh, I believe in having a bias for action. Even if you're wrong, just just feeling that you, you have the locus of control, that is an internal locus of control, is, I think, essential to humans' well-being, psychic well-being. And so I try to live by that philosophy. I love it. And I think that's an, that's definitely reflected in everything you've been talking about is just going out and trying things, you know, see if this works, see if that works rather than sitting and waiting. So number three, what advice would you give to your 25 year old self? Well, my 25 year old self at that point, I had not yet started my business. I was, uh, I was 27 when I started it. And so I think that probably one of the one of the most important things and people are doing this this more and better now which is which is great thanks to social media um but i think that the network that you build is really critical and so staying in touch with people even even just on facebook or linkedin or something like that is really essential it used to be pretty easy for for connections to drop off you know for you to just lose somebody from your life and never know what happened to them. And now it's a lot easier for that not to happen, but making a concerted effort to stay in touch with the people that you value and you know, not just in a passive way, you know, liking their posts, but really making the effort to continue to be part of their life, even if it's just you know, shooting them a periodic email or inviting them out every six months for, for a drink, I, I think is a great investment in your, in your career long-term. Mm-hmm. Number four, what advice do you have for your 75-year-old self? <laughs> well, my advice for my 75-year-old self would probably tie in with, uh, with my advice today, which is I, I, read, um, I read an article that if you're 70, you can 
still have the muscle tone of a 30 year old but the way to do it is that if if you're 70 in order to maintain that you have to work out an hour per day in order to have the muscle tone in a 30 year old who is completely indolent naturally has and so i think that what I need to remind myself in between here, you know, now and then is that I have to, uh, and, I, and I'm working on it, but I have to be a lot more disciplined about uh, fitness activities and prioritizing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel the same way. I just want to give a quick plug to hiking because it's an amazing way to work out and like also clear your head and just like it changes everything when you get out there and it doesn't feel like work, like going to the gym. So. Nice. <laughs> Number five, if you had to pick one object to represent yourself, what would you pick? Um, this, uh, there's a lot of ways you can answer this, but I'll, I'll, pick, I'll tell you the first one that comes to mind for me, which, which is maybe a little, a little sad, but I, I always have felt this, uh, this strong affinity for bulldogs. And uh, the reason for that is that they have they have these terribly smashed in noses uh, because of because of just you know like bulldog inbreeding or whatever. And I have had uh, sinus problems for a long time, and so I just feel like I can relate to them. I'm like, you know what? My nose is smashed in too, and I feel you, bulldog. I, I know what you're going through, so I just feel this kinship with them every time I see them huffing on the sidewalk. I have to say, when you said bulldog, I was right there with you because I would say like, yeah, you're someone who like gets out there and really like, you know, gets what you want. But then when you brought out the nose thing, I didn't, (laughs) I didn't see you go, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, they're spacious too, yeah. (laughs) All right, and lastly, what does it mean to you to claim the stage? So when it comes to claiming the stage, I I think that, uh, you know, I've started to do some stand-up comedy this summer. That's a uh, that's a new pastime of mine. And I was just doing a performance this past weekend, and a friend of mine who came had what I think is a very astute comment. And she said that when she saw some comics perform, they seemed so nervous that their jokes almost had to be twice as funny to make up for their nervousness. But she said if somebody was calm on the stage, if they had a presence such that they didn't look scared to be there, they looked comfortable to be there, they could be, you know, they had to be funny, of course, but they didn't have to be as funny because people were already in the zone with them and they were more ready and willing to laugh. And so I think that that's true. And I think that, that you know, claiming the stage is in a lot of ways about developing the confidence to not appear nervous, uh, to to put other people at ease so that your material can be better received. Hmm. Love it. Is there anything you'd like to share with my audience, like anything you have coming up, any offers or upcoming events that we should know about? Thank you, Angela. One thing that I will mention which has been, I think, a a useful tool for a lot of people is that I've created a free resource. It is a 42-page standout self-assessment workbook. And it's a series of 139 questions that literally walks you step-by-step through how to develop your own breakthrough idea and spread it. And folks can can get that if, if they're interested in honing their ideas, getting 
clear on their message and, and being able to build their brand, this will be a tool that enables them to do it. And they can find that at doryclark.com slash Angela. So that's D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com slash Angela. Nice. <laughs> and how can we find more information about you? Should we go to your website? I know you're all over social media. Absolutely. Yeah, there's I have more than 400 free articles available on my website, which is DoryClark.com. That is awesome. Dory, thanks so much for coming on today. You have provided such great insight into how you built your career and how others could do something similar if they want to get a book published, get noticed, get get on stage and just start becoming a recognized expert. So thanks so much. Angela, thank you. There you have it. My interview with Dory Clark, the wonder woman of branding, speaking, writing, and social media. Dory is awesome, right? I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And don't forget, the Speaking School for Women is back and registration closes this Monday, September 19th at midnight Eastern time. At the time of recording this on Wednesday, September 14th, there are nine spots remaining out of the 20. So don't delay registering if you want to become a paid speaker this year. I will help you build your brand, help you find your niche, start building key contacts, and get yourself booked for paid gigs. Speaking school is a ton of fun, and it works. I've been hearing from my students who took the program in the spring, and they are booking paid speaking gigs as we speak. So get on it. Register at AngelaLucier.us and click on Speaking School. It only comes around twice a year, and you don't want to miss it. I hope to see you there. And don't forget, my friends, stop waiting, start creating. See you next time.